All right, we're talking about the Apple Zero Day. Again, we're talking about a malware gang that talks you into infecting yourself, and we've got an embiggened This Week in Tech History segment here on the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Doug. That's Paul. Paul, we like to start these shows with a fun fact, and I've been watching the Olympics, and Tokyo is roughly 13 hours ahead of where I am, and it's been tough to line up when events are happening. And then I started to think, at what, what point in the world does the day flip over? And then I remember from my schooling, the international date line, and I looked it up. It's a very wobbly line. Oh, yeah. Like, go. <laughs> it's a line, but it's not <laughs> a straight line zigzag. <laughs> by any means. So I was uh, shocked to see how uh, jagged it was. And then I thought, this must cause problems at certain points on the Earth. And I found that there is a very far eastern island of Big Diomede in Russia, which is GMT plus 12, even though it's just 2.4 miles away, or 3.9 kilometers, from the closest part of the USA in Diomede, Alaska, which uses GMT minus nine. So right now, as we're recording this, it's roughly 9.15 a.m. Tuesday in Diomede, Alaska, and then a couple miles to the west, it's 5 a.m. Wednesday in Diomede, Russia. Well, I'll see you that and trump you the story of Samoa, which is a very resilient and adaptable country, it turns out. In recent times, they've changed the name of their country from Western Samoa to just Samoa. They have changed from driving on the right-hand side of the road to the left-hand side of the road with no trouble whatsoever. They prepared well. And they switched their time zone from being on the American side of the dateline to being on the Australian and New Zealand side of the dateline because most Samoan expats can be found in places like Australia and New Zealand. And so it was very inconvenient that they had the clocks the same, but the calendar different. So they had to lose a day, believe it or not. And so it couldn't be the last day of the year because that's New Year's Eve. So they omitted the 30th of December. Huh. And that is not all. There was a time when they went the other way, throwing their lot in with Hawaii and American Samoa and the US, where they figured, well, let's try the other side of the dateline. And so there they needed to gain a day. Clever trick. Guess what they did? They had, as far as I know, two fourths of July. How cool is that? Fun. If only we could do that every year or every public holiday. Just have the public holiday game the next day. Yeah. And I urge anyone that's interested in this to look up, just look up a map of the international dateline. It's, it's crazy. It swings wildly. Yes, and there is a time zone, UTC plus 14. Oh, where's that? Which is that? basically your clock's the same as Hawaii, but your calendar is not. <laughs> it is the very wide oh, I see it. of Kiribati. Yeah. And apparently they, they did have the dateline through the middle of the country. I think they have three time zones. So it's terribly oh inconvenient. God. And it's it's really and, far east, and very yeah. far west of it is the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska, which is US, which is minus ten. So east yes. of that, you have plus fourteen. It's amazing. Yes, they said it was because it was only logical not to have their country divided. It's a very wide country, not a very tall country. Mm -hmm. Imagine if Chile were turned on its side. It was illogical to have two different days. There are others in that region who say that the timing of the announcement of the shift 
was in fact for marketing purposes. It was just before the millennium, apparently. And so it meant that suddenly they would be the very first country to welcome the new millennium. Outstanding. On a piece of territory, <laughs> coincidentally renamed Millennium Island. <laughs> oh, how convenient. But it must, have, it must have made things like bookkeeping in the country so much easier. Fascinating things I learn every week just looking up fun facts. Maybe not as fascinating, but maybe more fascinating to some is that we're still talking about this Apple Zero Day. I think it was a week ago I said, I, you know, by the time we get done recording this, this will be over. Well, no, to be fair to yourself, Doug, you actually said by the time you listen to this, the story may have changed because we record on Tuesday. Ah, uh, yes. You're probably only going to listen on Wednesday or Thursday. But okay. at least... It wasn't print nightmare, Doug. Yes, well, that that seems to be uh, in bed, but we'll we'll see if that rears its ugly head again. So, what's happening with this story now? Well, <laughs> not much, except for the backstory to the story. Mm -hmm. That, as we said last week, we wonder what all this is about because the last time Apple did an update, we were wondering does it include that weird access point bug? They didn't say. But it turned out later that it did. And you were saying, well, I wonder if it's got to do with Pegasus. Who knows? We can't say. But it's even more surprising than that. The follow-up was that no sooner had Apple announced it, and there was no fancy name, there was no nightmare in there, there was no heart bleeding, there were no log jams, there were no poodles even. It was just CV 2021-30807. And suddenly, out of nowhere... A security researcher who apparently works for the uh, Microsoft Security Response Center, or at least lists MSRC on his Twitter feed as one of the people he works with. So I don't know whether it's his sole day job or not. Uh, suddenly came out on Twitter and said, hey, I found that vulnerability back in March 2021, but I didn't tell anybody. I was keeping it up my sleeve. I wanted to come back to it in August when I wouldn't be quite so busy and, as far as I can make out, kind of turn it into a full-blown jailbreak to make it more impressive and important and then report it. But how could he possibly prove that? Well, he could just say it, or he could do what scientists did in Europe during the Enlightenment or Renaissance period, hmm. and they would often pre-announce things that they were working on so that they could prove they had thought of them before anyone else without revealing them because it was still going to take them a few years in those days, not months, to finish their research and get the book printed. And a famous example is Robert Hooke, who was a physicist from Oxford in the 17th century. And he came up with Hooke's Law. If you ever did science or physics at school, you probably did an experiment to validate Hooke's Law, hanging weights on a rubber band. And you note that if you hang on one kilogram, it stretches X amount of centimetres. If you hang on two, it stretches 2X. If you hang on three kilograms, it stretches three times as much. And if you hang on 12 kilograms, which of course you do, even though teachers said don't do it, the rubber band snaps. <laughs> and so Hook had figured this out apparently in 1660, but he wasn't able to get round to publishing his book about it, Hook's Law, that the extension of something like a spring is proportional to the force on it. Uh, he didn't get around to publishing that till 1678. So 
What he did is he took the expression of Hooke's law, as it's now known in Latin, ut tensio seek this, as the extension, so the force, and then he reordered the letters in that sentence into alphabetical order. And he just said, here it is, and he put C-E-I-I-I-N-O-S-S-S-T-T-U-U. And the idea was he could then come back later and say, you see, the sentence that expresses my law, I gave you a, a hint of it that would be very hard to have forged back in 1660. Huh. <laughs> the way threat researchers do it these days is they take a file, for example, a text file that explains the proof of concept or the vulnerability or whatever, take a cryptographic hash. Sar Ahmad did it with a Shah 512, and then he just published a tweet saying, Shah of my document equals blah. So he kind of booked the vulnerability in as his own. And then later, the idea is, if he can come up with a document that has exactly that SHA-512 hash, then he must have had the document before he had the hash, because if a cryptographic hash is any good, you kind of can't go the other way. You can't generate a document that comes up with a known hash, at least not within the lifetime of the universe. So he claimed the vuln back in March, but for some reason he figured there was no point in telling Apple, which was a bit of a pity, given that it would probably have been fixed before Apple needed to fix it now, saying, as far as we could tell, this may have been in the wild. Anyway, on the very day that Apple came out and said we fixed it, he jumped up and claimed it. So he was obviously keen for people to know that he found it first, as far as he can tell. Hmm. We do have one comment that, uh, simply put, reads, Sure, it'd be nice if the bug was fixed in March instead of July. Yes, and as someone else who obviously did not agree with him holding it back, given that he could have disclosed it if he was just going to sit on it for so long, I could have thrown you a life preserver, but I wanted to see how long before you would drown, <laughs> which is perhaps a little bit cruel, but I get the idea. Mm -hmm. So I think what for some people spoiled the experience here a little bit is that he's very keen... And indeed, in the document that he sealed up with the cryptographic hash, the ut tensio seek this part of his, of his work, he did express the opinion that the vulnerability was really easy to find. And therefore, there are people saying, well, he probably should have figured that somebody else would find it too, if they just happened to look in the same place. So maybe this is one of those that it would have been better to disclose than to keep. So do we have advice for people here? It's kind of weird. It's like, uh, disclose it earlier or don't? I don't think we have any advice. I think each person has to go with their sense of ethics, morality, conscience, whatever you might call mm -hmm. it. So I'd like to think I would have disclosed it, and I think it's a pity he didn't. On the other hand, there is a school of thought that says, A, in competitions like Pwn to Own and stuff like that, mm -hmm. people can work for months and months and months, and there is an incentive not to hold on for it for too long, because if somebody else finds it first, then you get nothing, because only first to report wins. And B, there is the sense that if you take something that, hey, I can just cause a crash, but then you prove that this is a really serious exploit and you need to chain it together with a whole load of other stuff, then it will get higher priority from the company you're reporting it to. Oh, the other change was, since we talked about it last time, it was iOS and iPad OS only. 
Now there's a watch OS fix as well. So although at first we were saying there are only two platforms affected, it turns out there's three. So watch Apple's security portal page to see if you're affected. Do get the patch because it can be turned into a remote code execution exploit. And according to Apple, there's some evidence that somebody has used it in the real world. We don't know who, we don't know how, we don't know when, we don't know where. Okay. And we do know that we will be talking about this on next week's podcast. <laughs> oh, you now you're backing yourself, are you? Don't yeah, I'm going I'm to call it. Well, you can just you can bring it up anyway, can't you? Yeah. Can say, hey, the good news is we're talking about to say. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> it's a uh, Microsoft researcher found Apple zero day in March. Didn't report it. Uh, NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. And if you have a strong opinion on that, should you disclose early? Should you disclose late with much more detail? Does it not matter? Should you toss a coin? Come to our website and have your say. There are quite a lot of interesting comments there already. Please do. Okay. Uh, I am pleased to be talking about this week in tech history. This week in 1977, Radio Shack unveiled the TRS-80 personal computer. Back in 2012, I had the distinct pleasure of editing a 35th anniversary article by my friend and former colleague, Harry McCracken, when we both worked at Time Magazine, I urge you to read his ode to the TRS-80 over at Time.com if you're interested. Uh, it starts with, please don't call it the Trash 80, which was the unfortunate nickname that some TRS-80 haters gave to this machine. But here's a little snippet from the article. It's a fascinating article. The project had been instigated by Don French, a Radio Shack executive and computer hobbyist. In 1976, he convinced the company's president, Lou Kornfeld, and vice president, John Roach, that it should look into the PC market. They were initially skeptical about the idea, but French's timing was fortuitous. The market for CB radios, which had been extraordinarily good to Radio Shack, was on the verge of faltering. The company needed something new to pick up the slack. Forced with the challenge of creating a PC in Radio Shack's headquarters of Fort Worth, Texas, nowhere near the epicenter of the PC revolution in Silicon Valley, Radio Shack did a sensible thing. It imported a computer nerd from the valley. That nerd was Steve Leininger, an employee of chipmaker National Semiconductor. Like Apple's Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, he was a member of the Homebrew Computer Club whose members designed their own PCs for fun. He'd also been an employee of Paul Terrell's Byte Shop, the pioneering computer store where the first Apple machines were sold. Working to French's specifications, Leininger did most of the heavy lifting of designing the TRS-80. The computer's name sounded a bit retro even in the 1970s. The TRS stood for Tandy Radio Shack, and the 80 referenced the machine's microprocessor, the Z80. Radio Shack kept the branding even on later models which used different chips. At first, Radio Shack envisioned the TRS-80 as a solder-it-yourself kit, which it wanted to sell for $199. Leininger convinced the company to build a fully assembled plug-and-play computer. It ended up starting at an economical sounding $400, but that assumed that you supply your own monitor, a configuration I don't ever recall seeing in the wild. $600 got you a system with Radio Shack's 12-inch black-and-white display, 4 kilobytes of memory, and a cassette tape deck which let you save and load programs, albeit very slowly and very unreliably. The word very is most important there. Yeah, that is, yes. <laughs> very unreliably. <Yep. laughs> and very, very slowly. <laughs> yeah. He goes on to say, what you really wanted, though, was a TRS-80 with 16 kilobytes of memory, the powerful level two basic programming language provided by a company called Microsoft, and a floppy disk drive that could store up to 49 kilobytes of data, 
1979, that cost $1,647, about what you'd pay for a 16-kilobyte Apple II without a display or disk drive. A 50-kilobyte disk. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was big, huh? Well, no, it was actually quite small even then, but it was <laughs> yeah. a lot. It wasn't the size. It was the fact that you could save things to it and later actually read them back at all, unlike your cassette drive. <laughs> yeah. So if you were alive at this time and you're hearing these words that you, you, you may have been awash with nostalgia at all these things that were happening. So it was, you know, the Apple II and then this uh, kind of affordable home unit that started at uh, the bargain basement price of $400. But then once you really got it kitted out, it was up in the thousands. Their very first version of BASIC, as I remember, on the really minimalist machine, you could do integers, numbers, so you could have variables like A equals 3, B equals 9, C equals 12, I think, all the way up to Z equals, and you could even have floating point, you could have Z equals pi. But if you wanted to store strings, characters, where in BASIC you normally have the variable name, but you put a dollar sign after it, you couldn't have A dollar to Z dollar. You could only have A dollar and B dollar. You could only store and remember two text strings at a time. <laughs> they were challenging days, how can I say? Yes, they were. But then I suppose if you had 26 strings and they were longer than a few characters each, you'd have burned through all your memory anyway, just having messages in your program. That was before you could even display them. Absolutely. So again, that, um, that article is over on time.com. All you need to do is search for TRS-80 and time.com because I do remember pitching that article idea in an editorial meeting and everyone looking at me like I had three heads saying, what is this and why are we writing about it and we don't get it? And it was one of our most popular articles ever. And did you storm out in a huff or did you just shake your head sadly at how little they knew? I said, why don't you just trust your your tech team here and uh we might we might be on to something so that and uh writing about os2 whatever two things they were like what are you why are we doing this and then those are two very uh well trafficked articles because i guess the thing about writing about the trs80 is that anybody who had bought an apple II instead is going to read that article to make sure that you didn't say things that were too nice about the trs80 <laughs> yeah. or anything that was too uncomplimentary about their darling Apple or any of the early computers. Golly, there were so many. It was like the early days of the automotive industry, wasn't it? Where you go back to 1910 in the US. There were hundreds of automotive companies. The artisan ones were making cars by hand. Mm -hmm. Three a year, they just couldn't really keep up. Not at Henry Ford's price anyway. Yeah. All right, well... From a bizarre computer to a bizarre caller. This is Bizarre Caller, the malware gang that talks you into infecting yourself. And this seems oh, Doug, familiar. <laughs> only just, that penny only just dropped on that one. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably good. Yeah. Does this have anything to do with the bizarre loader that we talked about a while back? It does indeed. It's the same bizarre, not bizarre, although it is a somewhat bizarre story. Mm -hmm. So back in April, uh, Sophos Labs dug into a malware gang, if you like, going by Bazaar Loader. And as you probably know, Loader is short for Downloader. And in the malware scene, it's kind of the very, very slimmed down malware 
that you use up front to download the real malware that you want to deploy later that you haven't quite decided on yet. If you're thinking about these malware downloading services, the big one that many of our listeners will have heard of was good old Emotet back in the day. They got taken out by with a law enforcement takedown sometime January 2021, I do believe. And we don't really know what happened to them. Presume they reappeared somewhere else. But it created a little bit of a vacuum that gave an opportunity for, for other groups to step up to the plate, if you like. And it seems that the Bizarre Loader guys was one of that group. They're back in no uncertain terms. And the reason we want we felt that we should write about this is Microsoft put out a warning about their, well, their ongoing activities last week. Microsoft, as you can imagine, they feel really, um, they feel at least as personally about this as anyone else, maybe more so because these crooks tend to use Microsoft Office files as the way of injecting the, the downloader part, the thing that gives them control that lets them do whatever they want later. But the interesting part about this is that these guys are copying what the tech support scammers did a few years ago. You know, those tech support scammers, they'd pop up a thing on your in your web browser. Oh, you got 200 viruses. Like you're in real trouble. Mm -hmm. You're going to get kicked off the internet. Click here to download the fix or click here to talk to a consultant. And then you get through to a chat window and somebody would convince you to buy a product on your credit card to remove viruses that didn't exist. And so everyone quickly learned, well, don't click the link. So the tech support scammer said, that's no problem. We're making $1,000 a time out of the average person we rip off. We'll set up a helpline. So you don't have to click a link. It'll say, call this number. Better yet, we'll make it 1-800. You can call for free and someone will help you. And it turns out that when people talk to what they think is an IT help desk person, they're kind of more inclined to follow dodgy instructions than if they just get a dodgy link in an email. And these guys are doing the same thing. They basically say, hey, thanks for, thanks for joining the fitness club. Your trial's ended. We put the payment through for your gold membership. If this is an error or you actually don't wish to proceed and you wish to bail out, call this number. And of course, you know how these things work. It's not a real number. It connects to some kind of voice over IP service, internet telephony service. So the number's local. You call it in your country, but it doesn't necessarily get you through to someone in your country. And basically, some very helpful person talks you into infecting yourself with the bizarre load of malware. We had a family member who um, had a message pop up on her computer reporting to be from Microsoft. Call this number. Something's, something's wrong. Yep. She called the number. She got talked into handing over remote control of her computer. She saw them going through their yes. files. And then um, shut the computer down, thought something was weird, and then received a call back from this number. And the, then the guy got um, aggressive and started saying, you know, we've got, we've got webcam footage of you and we've been turning it on when you're not looking and all this kind of stuff. And so I spent about an afternoon going through being like, yeah, this is a scam. It's not real. But that's scary for people who don't know what's, uh, what's happened to them. Yes. And I guess the obvious question here is how can these crooks make any money out of this when they have to take a call from every single person they want to infect? And I guess there's a twofold answer to that. The first is they don't only have to use that method. And the second is that with this method, like the tech support scammers 
found because remember they used to call you up all the time Mm -hmm. now some of them still do but generally people just slam the phone down or they don't even answer it so the crooks figured why don't we ask people to call us Mm -hmm. we'll get far fewer people returning our calls than we had to call or send emails to in the first place but (laughs) they're kind of self-selecting as people who (laughs) have already crossed the bridge of thinking this might be true yeah I don't want this to sound like any kind of victim blaming. It's like if you call the number thinking in high dudgeon, well, I, yeah, I remember I was on a health site, fitness site the other day, but I never signed up. It must be those jolly people. I'm going to phone that number. And then a person will be very helpful while you're doing what they want. And then, of course, as you found out when your family member got hit by this, when you're not doing what they want, then they'll try other social engineering tricks up to and including outright intimidation and aggression. And that's really the problem is not only are you almost pre-selecting yourself by calling, you probably think that you're much safer than if you clicked a link because you're not putting your computer in any immediate danger. But you are lending yourself to what we call a human-led attack. Here, the crooks, they're waiting for you to call and then they're making sure that you do it the right way for them and the worst possible way for you. So every time there's an objection that you come up with, they're right there to adjust the lies, to change the spiel. In this latest round of attacks, they're using tactics like saying, you've automatically been upgraded to this paid version of this software, or you've joined this club and call up to cancel if you didn't mean to do this. And that's how they're getting people on the hook to call in, right? That's right. And sadly, there are, well, at least borderline legitimate companies borderline legitimate behaviors both with clubs and software apps that do work exactly that way aren't there mm-hmm. you know, we've written many times on naked security about what we call fleeceware say in google play and also in in apple's app store where you can have trial periods that are as short as three days for software and it's not a question it's not like sophos home where we'll let you try it for 30 days full version when it expires, either you have to pay at that point or you carry on using the free version. There, if you don't cancel within as short as three days, then what you're agreeing is you're going to be billed. And if you forget the date or you don't realize that you act signed up or you just don't do it quickly enough, you get charged anyway. And those things are apparently not illegal. It's unfortunate that what these crooks are doing is not quite as obviously dodgy as you might think when you first read about it. And there are probably any number of listeners who've either been in or come close to a situation like that. You know, these products that say, yeah, you're welcome to try this out for a period of two weeks. Give us your credit card number up front. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to read very carefully. Why do they want it up front? Yes, sir. See also... uh hey, look at this service. It's really easy to sign for, sign up for online. Want to cancel? You got to call. Or you got to write a letter. Or you got to fax. And uh, when you try to call, it's really hard to get through to someone. When you finally do get th- through to someone, they make it really difficult to actually cancel the service. And it seems that that's sort of what these scammers are banking on, that when they're helping you, you're going, but I, it's really hard to unsubscribe. If you go to the, the Sophos News article, the Sophos Labs article on this from April, there's a link in the Naked Security post. All of this is explained, like exactly the, the process that, that they had to go through when they were trying this out. And although it sounds bizarre or bizarre, 
it is, as you say, kind of what some people will have experienced before. So it seems that what they're doing is they're just leading people into behaviours that they do not like, but that they may have experienced before. The difference is that this time, some kind person is giving them a helping hand mm -hmm. to make sure that because they're disappointed, because they're annoyed, to make sure they get it right. And we have some advice for the good people, the first of which is to never assume that calling a phone number is safer than clicking on a web link. Yes, I think that's the easiest way to think about this. Anybody can mail you a phone number. It can be a phone number in your own town. It can be a toll-free number in your country. It doesn't mean that the people you're talking to are in your country. They almost certainly are not. And it doesn't mean they have any legitimate connection with what it is that they're claiming to talk to you about. And that uh, segues nicely into our next tip, which uh, is a drum that we've beaten before, but never rely on contact details given to you by an outsider. Indeed. Here's an email. It's come out of the blue. It says, hey, we've done X or Y or Z. We charged you this. We're offering you a free that. All you have to do is call this number. You have no idea who sent you the contact details. All you can be sure of is when you call that number or click the link or reply to the email or whatever, you will reach someone who will at least pretend to be the person that they said they were. Hello, XYZ Corporation. What's the chance of that happening if it's not real? And the answer is trivial to arrange. If you set up the number and you're paying the person who answers the phone, you can get them to say whatever you like. And then uh, this is a good one. Never change a security setting on your computer because someone you don't know told you to. Yes, this is a very common way for crooks who can nearly get into your computer, but not quite. So, for example, you've got a document. You open it up because you think, well, it's only a document. Document isn't a program. And by default in Office these days, a doc file isn't a program. It can have macro programming code embedded in it, but by default, that won't run. And most organizations have either said no macros at all or only macros that come from work. If it's come by email, we're just not having it because it's too dangerous. So the crooks have to find some way of getting you to enable something that actually means reducing a security setting. And in this case, obviously, they're there to talk you through it. But the common way is they pretend, for example, this document is encrypted for your security. So you need to enable all these features because that will improve security. And that's all a pack of lies. They could also do other things like say, oh, are you having trouble installing the malware we're trying to get you to download? Well, maybe you should turn off your antivirus program. They often get in the way, you know. <laughs> and unfortunately, there are still legitimate companies that just to make it easy for their own support team, advise you to do that when you're installing their brand new software. It's a crazy idea. Don't do it. If they can't make their program installed in a way that doesn't cause security alarm bells to go off all over the place, maybe find a different product. Yes, sir. So if somebody you don't know is saying, yeah, change the setting. Yeah, just turn that off. You can click OK. Don't listen to them. Find someone in IT from your business whose voice you recognize or talk to a friend whom you actually know and you trust and ask them instead. Don't listen to a stranger. It can go horribly wrong. All right, then we've got never feel compelled to call a number back, whether you're being threatened or flattered. This idea of, no, 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 we're just asking you to call us because obviously that's safer. 
you're not clicking on a bad link. Everyone knows links are bad, but what harm could a phone call do? Just don't let yourself get suckered. And if you have somebody in your friends or family circle that you think is the kind of person who might be vulnerable to being put upon by crooks of this sort, like the family member you had to help, Doug, just make sure that you always remind them that when they're not sure, call you first, not somebody who could be a crook. And then our favorite recurring piece of advice, listen to our special podcast episode on social engineering. Yes, it's one of those things that's... It's the gift that keeps on giving. It helps to practice. The more you can learn in advance, the better you can protect yourself. All right, so that uh, episode is Season 3, Episode 12, A Chat with Social Engineering Hacker Rachel Toback, and that... Article is called Bizarre Caller, the malware gang that talks you into infecting yourself on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And Paul, I am happy to announce that this week you will be handling the oh no because you did some very special research. <laughs> uh, well, how special it was, but to my colleague Petter, thank you so much. I'm now going to embarrass myself by trying to speak Swedish mm. and I'm not going to get it right, even though I've only got like three words that I'll need. Uh, but this is a this is a, a loyal listener from Sweden called Jonas, and he sent me a story this week that he just described says this happened quite a few years ago at a and he, he named the Swedish organization. It's quite a big company. Uh, so we'll just anonymize it as the big company. In this case, it was the proverbial copy and paste error and an accountant at the big company was doing the month's expense accounts. And back in those days, it wasn't automated. It meant copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste from this person needs this much money into the spreadsheet that would go to the bank to authorize the payouts. This particular employee was due 3,500 kronor. Uh, it's about 400 bucks US. So the accountant copied and pasted the person's bank account number, which is 12 digits long, and then copied and pasted the 3500 the amount of money that the person was supposed to get, except that they missed when they copied and pasted the 3500 and they copied and pasted the next person's account number <laughs> instead. And <laughs> so comically, the person ended up with something like 1,218,961,337 kronor and 42 ura. And through it went, and you imagine, well, the person is supposed to get 400 bucks. Obviously, the bank is going to laugh at it, but it went through. Oh, God. And <laughs> believe it or not, and apparently somebody was a billionaire in Sweden for five minutes. Oh. And then the money just went away, just like that. And that was both the sad ending and probably the happy ending. You mentioned these days, if you saw that money and you thought, hey, they made a mistake, I'm going to capitalize on it, and you bought yourself a bunch of bitcoins, you would probably be in a world of hurt because a court or a tribunal would probably argue that you were not expecting that money and therefore you must have known it was not yours and you'd have to pay it back. I don't know whether the person was able to make a screenshot 
realizing what had happened and thinking, I just I at least have to get a picture of this. Yeah, <laughs> hang it on the wall. <laughs> just for my grandkids. With you standing in front of you it. Go, oh, <laughs> look how much money I was able to blow in half an afternoon. Yep. Well, that was a good oh no. And if you have an oh no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you, until next time, to stay, stay secure. secure.